How's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. You know what word I think gets a bad rep? Croc. Like, I made some chicken in a crock pot recently and came out pretty good. I'm pretty sure they just used to mean containers, but then people started to call things like, ah, what a crock, which I think is short for crock of shit, but people don't always want to say the shit part because of, you know, society. But it seems like using the word crock as a synecdoche, I, I think that's the word, for crock of shit is really unfair because it's the of shit part that's the bad part. Like, if you said mug of shit, that's not good. But nobody goes around saying, ah, what a mug. Because people don't generally keep shit in mugs. But you know where else they don't keep it? In Crocs. So, I don't know. Look, I'll be honest with you, I kind of thought this was going somewhere, but just seems like it isn't. I thought maybe I'd be able to tie in the shoes or... Maybe Ray Kroc, the former owner of McDonald's, but I don't know. Yeah, I'm sorry. This whole week's been a real mug. Anyway, without any further ado, let's ado uh, this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Devin Tui. I assure you this podcast is no pyramid scheme. It delivers great fortune beyond what you dream. Just tell five more friends, and then they'll tell more, and soon countless people will bang on your door, asking for Hubbard and giving you riches. So prepare for your wealth and take in this synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Devin, for that entirely true and informational rhyme. Defenders number 115, January 1983. Written by J.M. DeMatteis. Drotted by Don Perlin, inked by Hilary Barta, lettered by Shelley Lefferman, colored by George Russos, and edited by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup Namor, Valkyrie, Beast, Gargoyle, Doctor Strange, Son of Satan, The Hulk, Silver Surfer, Scarlet Witch, The Vision. Overmind slash Mindy, Hyperion, and Nighthawk. Sort of. Previously in the Defenders. Whoo boy. It's been a pretty rough indeterminate amount of comic book time for Kyle Richmond, a.k.a. Nighthawk. The billionaire-do-well-bird enthusiast had been attempting to reconcile with his ex-girlfriend Mindy, who he had killed in a drunk driving accident back in college. She had gotten better and sent some robo-hippies with laser guitars to kill Kyle. Then she got psychic powers, which she used to paralyze him. But lately, they had been getting along much better. Then, August Masters, a fascist former government agent with a Roman centurion fetish, kidnapped Mindy and a bunch of other psychics so that he could use them to murder Russia. 
Kyle attempted to intervene, but he did a bad job and got captured. Mindy and the psychics didn't want to murder Russia, so they came up with a plan. First, they fused their minds together and stuffed their combined psyches into Kyle's brain, because, let's face it, there was plenty of space in there. Then, they triggered the self-destruct sequence on the base where they were being held, blowing themselves, August Masters, and Kyle to smithereens. Bummer. And after his death, Kyle's bad luck streak continued. The affluent avian aficionado awoke in a different dimension on an alternate Earth with only fuzzy memories of recent events. He soon learned that he was on a world known as Earth-S, the home of the off-brand Marvel Universe equivalent of the Justice League, known as the Squadron Supreme. He also learned that this Earth's version of Kyle Richmond had been elected President of the United States. Oh no! Even worse. Well, maybe not worse, but probably nearly as bad. Soon after the election, President Kyle had fallen under the mental sway of a bearded psychic space jerk named Overmind. Overmind was the last survivor of a race of space jerks who had tried to conquer the universe, but they did a bad job and died. Whoops. As their final act, the dying space jerks all piled their minds into Overmind's brain and told him to wreck the universe for them. Overmind used President Kyle to turn America into a fascist police state. You know, more so. Then he took over the brains of the Squadron Supreme and used them to conquer the rest of the world. The only member of the Halloween store JLA to successfully resist Overmind's cerebral subjugation was C-minus surrogate Superman Hyperion. Hyperion teamed up with regular Kyle, and through a bizarre combination of magic, science, and happenstance, they managed to enlist the aid of a temporarily expanded Defenders roster and teleport them all over from regular Earth. As the gang prepared for the big showdown with Overmind and President Kyle, they were surprised by the arrival of an unexpected ally. Or possibly allies because it turned out that the explosion that once seemed to have killed Kyle was even less fatal than it initially appeared, because a being of pure mental energy that bore a striking resemblance to Mindy showed up claiming to be the astral collective of all the psychics August Masters had kidnapped. The being explained that just before the explosion, they were able to use their powers to shove Kyle across the dimensions to the relative safety of Earth-S. Neat! Apparently, Mindy and the Mindettes had goofed a little, and August Masters had come along for the ride and was bopping around Earth-S somewhere as well. The gang filed that information under G for good to know, and headed out to confront Overmind. Things started off smoothly, with the Defenders easily trouncing the brainwashed Squadron Supreme. Hooray! But then an even more wackadoo than usual August Masters showed up and shot President Kyle in the head. This impromptu John Wilkes Booth impression had some unexpected results. Regular Kyle was horrified to see his doppelganger's death, and even more horrified when a strange black smoke started billowing out of the corpse and coalescing into the air, forming a semi-familiar nebulous mass of eyeballs and tentacles known as Null the Living Darkness. Who's Null, you might ask? Well... Null was the nihilistic collective ghost of a race of extinct nose-flute-playing speedo-clad lunar angels who had suicided by pancaking into the moon's surface in a fit of ennui. Apparently, Null had bumped into Overmind a while ago, and they had bonded over the fact that they both had brains filled with millions of vengeful ghosts who wanted to wreck the cosmos. Null had been hiding out inside President Kyle and controlling Overmind, while Overmind was controlling everyone else. 
Once Null was out in the open, he took over Overmind's Overmind, which caused Overmind to release his control of the Halloween Store Justice League. Null began his assault on our heroes, and things looked pretty grim for the good guys. But then, they figured that it takes a telepathic turducken to beat a telepathic turducken. So the Defenders and the Squadron Supreme all piled their minds into Mindy's mind, clown car style, and thought at Null just as hard as they could. Null thought back at them and there was a big explosion. When the dust settled, Null was destroyed, and Mindy and the Psychics ended up moving into Overmind's now-vacant body. Hooray? While well, Mindy and company explained how they had hermit-crabbed their way into Overmind, regular Kyle checked in on August Masters, who was standing over President Kyle's corpse and gibbering incoherently at it. The reason for Masters' consternation soon became apparent. Rather than the Kyle corpse one might expect, President Kyle's body had melted into a weird blob of bioorganic nonsense. Regular Kyle stared in horror at the inert mass which had so recently resembled him before declaring the shocking revelation that he had just realized he was not in fact regular Kyle. He was President Kyle. What? Also, Gadzooks! If regular Kyle is really President Kyle, then what happened to regular Kyle? After tangling with not one, but two multitude-containing, nigh-omnipotent existential threats to all creation, what terrifying enemy will our titular non-team face next? And how much of this issue will concern the events detailed in the long and incredibly convoluted previously in the Defenders summary that I just recited? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so... He's dead a cat in a hat, and the first four pages. But it's like really relevant for those four pages. So that makes it totally worth me having written that whole thing, right? Right? Kyle is pretty freaked out about his recent revelation and asks Overmind slash Mindy, or Overmindy, as I think I'm going to call them, for some clarification. Overmindy is like, Okay, so here's the deal. You know how I told you that I rescued you from dying in that explosion by shoving you into this dimension? Well, I kinda sorta didn't. I tried to save you, but I didn't oopsie and accidentally shoved August Masters here instead of you. You, or at least the Kyle you thought you were, died in the explosion. I came to this dimension to yoink Masters back and put him in jail or something. But when I got here, Overmind slash Null had just taken over President Kyle's mind. Which is to say, your mind, because you're President Kyle. I was able to push them out of your brain and get you to safety, but your memories were all scrambled, and since I had absorbed some of regular Kyle's memories before he died, I just sort of shoved them into your body. Sorry about that. Kyle is like, But if I'm President Kyle, then what's this melting blob of goo that was calling itself President Kyle? Overmindy is like, Null was forced to create a bioorganic construct that looked like you so that he could keep running the country. He hid himself inside of it, but when August Masters forced Null to leave the U-shaped cocoon he had built by shooting it in the head, the body disintegrated, 
The shock of seeing that must have restored your true memories. Or at least some of them. Steve nods sagely and is like, mm, Yes, I figured it was probably something like that. Yeah, sure you did, Steve. August Masters doesn't take this exposition dump nearly as well as Steve does. He curls himself up in the fetal position and starts rocking back and forth, muttering incoherently to himself. To be fair, that's not entirely dissimilar to how I reacted when I realized I was going to have to summarize over Mindy's explanation. Kyle slash President Kyle doesn't take it much better. He lashes out at over Mindy and is like, Why did you do it? Why did you mess with my mind and make me think I was someone I'm not? With tears in their eyes, Overmindy is like, I did it because Mindy is in here and she loves you. This information does little to console a visibly distraught President Kyle. I can see why he's so upset. I mean, sure, he gets to be president, but he also has to live in a place where Kyle is the president. Mm. President Kyle and Hyperion turn on the Squadron Supreme's interdimensional teleporter and prepare to send the Defenders, Overmindy, and August Masters back to regular Earth. Steve tells President Kyle he's welcome to visit them anytime he wants, but President Kyle is still sore over the whole having the memories of a dead man shoved into his brain thing. He tells Steve to fuck off forever and pushes the button on the teleporter. Seconds later, the Defenders find themselves standing in Steve's sanctum sanctimonious. Well, most of them do. See, a cockroach had crawled inside of the teleportation machine and caused a tiny glitch, which resulted in four members of our titular non-team being sent to an entirely different location. Namor, Valkyrie, Beast, and Gargoyle find themselves in a strange, brightly colored environment filled with enormous pink and purple mushrooms and trees with googly eyes and cartoon smiles. Huh. Maybe they got teleported into a blacklight poster in a college dorm room. Most of the gang seems to take this turn of events in stride, but Namor is pretty pissed off. You see, this is the second time in the past few weeks that the Prince of Abslantis has found himself stranded in a strange dimension, and he's more than a little bit sick of it. He turns to Valkyrie and is like, This is the last time I answer one of Steve's invitations. The only reason I came back to the Defenders in the first place was to attend your funeral. And you're not even dead anymore! Val is like, Hey, it was Kyle's funeral too. And it turns out he is really dead. You would have shown up for that too, right? Namor is so upset that he doesn't even laugh at Val's very funny joke. The Asgardian Amazon changes tactics and manages to calm the amphibious Atlantean down a little by A. telling him how much she respects him, and 2. pointing out that wherever they are, they can at least take solace in the fact that nobody here voted for Kyle Richmond. Unfortunately, before the Submariner is fully mollified, Beast interrupts Valkyrie's speech to inform the gang that they have company. And just who is it that lives in this dimension anyway? Hookah-smoking caterpillars? A guy with a melting face and the words, STONED AGAIN, floating in the air above his head? A series of gentlemen with large noses and terrible posture imploring our heroes to keep on trucking? Nope. 
It's a bunch of adorably weird Muppety creatures who talk in a familiar and very specific rhyme scheme. You know, the kind of rhyme scheme one might expect to hear from an individual intent on purloining a certain festive seasonal holiday, or from someone counting sea creatures whilst taking note of their color, or narrating a tale of children who like to jump up and down on their father. In case I was being too cryptic, the leader of the creatures introduces himself as Mayor Green Eggs and informs our puzzled protagonists that his diminutive assistant is named Ann Ham. Get it? Green Eggs and Ham? Huh? The gang asks Mayor Green Eggs where exactly they are, and he informs them, in rhyme of course, that they are in a place called Here. He then asks, with some trepidation, whether the defenders come from the rival location of there. The defenders insist that they do not, which seems to relieve the mayor somewhat. Anham whispers in Mayor Greenegg's ear and suggests that perhaps these strangers are the legendary quartet who have been referred to as they in an ancient prophecy. That theory seems plausible to the mayor, and he invites our heroes back to City Hall so that they can all examine the prophecy together. As the gang strolls by oddly-shaped vegetation decorated with colorful tufts of fur, Namor tells his companions that he is now certain that they are experiencing a shared hallucination and will no doubt wake up soon. The other defenders seem unconvinced. Soon, they arrive at City Hall, a lumpy, misshapen building with a thatched pink roof. Mayor Greenegg's rummages through a trunk and eventually retrieves a battered children's book which has the phrase Stan Lee Presents, emblazoned on the cover. The book is filled with crude, childish pictures of Namor, Val, Beast, and Gargoyle. It refers to them as they, and predicts that they are destined to help the people of here defeat Easy Reed, the evil mayor of there. Mayor Easy Reed has been terrorizing here by using flying creatures named Ginks to drop tomatoes on the city. The book says that the heroic they will help defeat the mayor of there by vanquishing his fearsome underling, Thornton, and dumping him in the sea. At this point, Namor pipes up and is like, Nope! Fuck all this! Even for a hallucination, this is too damn silly! Not only am I not doing shit, but I'm not going to listen to this crap a second longer! Imperious Rex! The citizens of here all start sobbing uncontrollably. The rest of the defenders start mean-mugging Namor, but he's like, Nope! Too busy not listening to feel any remorse! Anham again whispers in the mayor's ear, and the mayor stops crying and is like, Okay, let me sweeten the pot. If you help us beat Thornton, then we can help you get home. See, in the mayor of theirs castle, he has some magic ruby sneakers, and if you click the heels together three times and say, there's no place like the place I was before I was here, then you can go wherever you want. Sound good? I mean, he says all that in rhyme with a very distinct meter, but that's the gist of it. Namor is once again exasperated with how silly everything is. You know, for a guy who frequently says, suffering shad, and where's a green speedo in court? Namor's awfully concerned with appearing dignified. 
The rest of the gang finds Namor's disdain for the situation hilarious, and agrees to fight Thornton in exchange for the ruby sneakers. That night, the citizens of here throw a huge party in honor of their would-be saviors. Everyone but Namor has a great time. Meanwhile, back on Earth, Kyle Richmond's former nurse, Luann Bloom, is pissed off about Kyle's death by explosion. She doesn't know about the whole President Kyle alternate Earth thing where one Kyle's memories got stuffed into another Kyle. But what she does know is that her former employer and friend is dead and that she blames the defenders. Luann has arranged to meet a mysterious individual who claims to have evidence of the defenders' culpability. She arrives at the agreed-upon alleyway for her clandestine meeting and is surprised to find that her enigmatic informant is a diminutive gentleman who is dressed like one of Santa's helpers. Huh. He greets Luann and implies that he has recently used a firearm. So he's an elf with a gun. Well, shit. Back in here, Mayor Greeneggs has assembled his army and is preparing for their adventure. Valkyrie is taken aback when she notes that all of the weapons are harmless plastic toys, but Beast thinks that's pretty rad. When everyone's ready to go, the gang hops on the backs of some giant, goofy-looking fishes and begins their journey towards there. Namor is still all grumpy, so Val suggests that taking a swim might cheer him up. Namor takes her advice and is disgusted to find that the sea they are traversing is not made of water, but strawberry soda. From high in his tower of Castle Easy Read, the fiendish mayor of there, who incidentally is a purple cat with a speech impediment and a large golden top hat, watches our heroes approach through a comically twisted telescope, and opines that his henchman Thornton will soon dispose of them. When the defenders reach the other side of the Strawberry Soda Sea, they are indeed greeted by Thornton, a big fuzzy creature with a bubble pipe and two bicycle horns strapped to his head. Thornton seals the Heer army in bubbles from his pipe, but Valkyrie frees them with her sword. The gang attacks Thornton, but finds that his body is a gooey mass of sludge that is impervious to their assault. Our heroes wait for their foe to counterattack, but instead, Thornton calls them neighbor and insists that he detests all forms of violence. He instead tells them a long, meandering story that bores the defenders so much that they fall asleep. While Thornton and the heroes are thus occupied, Mayor Greeneggs and his assistant Anham sneak up to Castle Easyreed and confront their enemy. The mayor of there surrenders immediately, and Greeneggs and Anham spank him with their plastic toys until he agrees to end the war and stop dropping tomatoes on them. Hooray? A short while later, after Mayor Easyreed has ordered Thornton to release the defenders, everyone assembles in the castle for a post-war debriefing. Val is like, Say, how did this war start anyway? Why did their attack here in the first place? Mayor Easyreed is like, Well, that's the whole problem. They think that this is there and there is here, when clearly they live there and this is here. Namor once again gets super pissed about how silly everything is and starts punching the walls, until Anham hands him a pair of jewel-encrusted red sneakers. 
Namor once again objects to the silliness of the situation, but under duress, eventually dons the magic shoes, clicks his heels together three times, and solemnly intones, There's no place like the place I was before I was here. Immediately, the gang is sent shooting through a cosmic Rube Goldberg device and find themselves standing in the Sanctum Sanctimonious alongside their teammates. Steve is like, See, I knew they weren't lost between dimensions again. There was just a few seconds delay between us arriving and them. Namor is like, So we were only missing a few seconds? Aha! For some reason, I think that that proves that I was right, and that this whole nonsense was just a shared hallucination. Gargoyle is like, Oh, I don't know about that. Look at your feet. Namor looks down and is stunned to find that he is still wearing the ruby sneakers. Dang! This is just like that one Nelson video. You know, where the kid with the abusive dad goes into the poster and an offensive stereotype of a Native American gives him a feather and takes him to a Nelson concert? But then he wakes up and it was all a dream. Only then he finds a feather, so it wasn't all a dream. Namor is shocked and the other defenders point at him and giggle. The end. It's okay, Namor. Just remember, after the rain washes away the tears and all the pain, only after the rain can you live again. And joining me once again via the magic of telephonic communication is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how's it going? Hey, it's going just fine. It's a uh, beautiful Saturday. I got to sleep in a little bit this morning. I got to read a very strange comic book, and uh, now we're here hanging out. So, so far, so good. Nice. How about you? I'm doing okay. I've been reading a lot of uh, Robert Parker's Spencer novels lately. That's been pretty fun. Huh. What did you think of the more uh, recent take on him with uh, Marky Mark? Oh, that was very bad. But to be fair, most of the Spencer novels, I've been really enjoying them, but they're not great. Okay, so here's my impression of the first chapter of an early Spencer for Hire novel. Page and a half of very specific Boston driving instructions. Mm hmm. Check. Then he gets to his office. There's a pretty younger woman waiting there for him who wants to hire him. Get about two or three paragraphs describing the outfit that she is wearing, which he clearly thinks is a very classy outfit, but sounds absolutely bonkers the way he describes it. He smiles at her, so she decides she wants to have sex with him, but is like... You're obviously the toughest, strongest man in the world, but how do I know you're not stupid and racist and sexist? And he's like, well, here's the name of seven poets that I read, and I have a cool black friend. And she's like, well, two out of three ain't bad, so they have sex for nine hours. And then in the morning, we get the recipe for a very complicated, probably scallop-themed breakfast that he makes her. Wow. In, like, that's the general start to all the books, or just the one that you're reading? I've read 11 of them in the past <laughs> two weeks, <laughs> and I feel like that's most of them. 
hey, you know, you got a, a winning formula, your books are selling, you know, no need to uh, mix it up. After the first, I think, six books, he gets a steady girlfriend and then he stops sleeping with the women but he'll still have nine hours of sex with his girlfriend and make it very clear that the women who hire him do want to have sex with him he just usually doesn't well yeah i mean that's because he got those two out of oh wait nope anyway that's my pastiche of the works of an author do you want to examine another author's pastiche of the works of another author Well, I suppose there's no way around it, as that's what we are here to do. So let me just start by saying, uh, well, plunk my magic twanger and call me Froggy. Because, wow, this as promised was pretty weird. And also, I don't know, fraught? Yeah. The source material for this story does center around an individual who is not unproblematic. But honestly, I really enjoyed it, I gotta say. It was, I think you're right, very weird. I don't know if I would go so far as the cover does and say it's the weirdest adventure ever, because we did have all of those Steve Gerber years, but it's pretty far up there. Oh, yeah. I think this is one of those situations of let's say, like, genuinely weird and then wants to be weird. Hmm. Like, I don't know, thinking back to high school years, for example. Okay. This book falls into the, the category of, like, the kid that's like, I'm so weird. And I feel like the Tunnel World story was the kid that's just like, ooh, hope he's going to be okay. <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying. Although I would say, I think the weirdness in this story was intentional, but not necessarily performative. Like, it didn't to me seem like it was weird for the sake of being weird. I thought it was genuinely a story that Demetrius wanted to tell, and I thought some really interesting choices were made in it. So there's three main parts of the story. Or rather, two main parts and one interlude, which we really do have to talk about. Let's get that first interlude out of the way real quick. Mm-hmm fucking elf with a gun is back yeah yeah my notes say oh shit it's elf with a gun yeah how do you feel about that i feel about that the way that i feel anytime elf with a gun has showed up which is just like god damn it why yeah i feel like he got a dismissive but appropriately so send-off by david anthony Kraft, where he just shows up and gets run over by a truck Apropos of nothing, I think that is the send-off that that character actually deserved. And now he's back, and I'm not not thrilled about it. I'm not either, and the context in which he's back is ostensibly he is going to be hired by Original Earth's Kyle to do some dirt to the Defenders by Kyle's ex-nurse. Well, OG Kyle is dead. That, yeah. So he's not hiring anybody. No, his ex-nurse is hiring. Is she going to hire him? I thought he just confronted her in an alley. And we don't know what they're up to. I don't know what they're up to either, but the way that it's set up is like she's all, ah, oh, man, I blame the defenders for Kyle's death, so I'm going to go meet with this shady guy who's got some information, and then I see itself with a gun. I'm like, oh, this isn't going to be good. That is fair. I think regardless of what his working relationship is with Luann, if 
elf with a gun is involved, my general stance is, oh, this isn't going to be good. Mm -hmm. The first main story we have, other than the elf with a gun bit, is the wrap up of the previous storyline and an attempt to explain all of the bits that were left unexplained and the defenders come back to Earth. What did you think of that? I appreciated the attempt to kind of put a bow on it. Mm -hmm. As I think we talked about in the last episode, boy, if there's something that uh, multi-minded entities like, it's exposition. Yeah. Over Mindy, which is what I think I'm going to call the character for the time being. That's what I put in my notes, too. Oh, nice. (laughs) So, yeah, over Mindy, we learn a lot about what she was up to. Much of it was what we had supposed at the end of the last issue. She tried to save Kyle or they. I'm I'm not sure which pronouns we should use for over Mindy. I guess probably they is more appropriate because there are literally many people inside their mind. So I'm going to try to stick with they, I guess. Okay. So yeah, over Mindy confirmed that they were trying to save Kyle and they did a bad job and accidentally saved August Masters instead, then went to the dimension where they accidentally sent August Masters and found that that dimension's Kyle had just been taken over by Overmind. And so they yoinked him away and stuffed the last fleeting memories of Kyle that I guess they still had access to for some reason onto that Kyle's mind and temporarily overwrote them. And then everything went all higgledy-piggledy. Yeah, leaving a uh, very confused and pissed off Earth S Kyle, who's basically now original Earth Kyle. Sort of. He now has Earth S Kyle's memories, I think. And maybe OG Kyle's memories. It's tough to tell, but either way, he is not happy about the situation, which is understandable. I mean, it's bad enough having to be one Kyle. Now he's got to be two of them. So I get why he's pissed off. But why do you think he's so mad at the defenders? I guess... It's one of those things where you look back on a series of events and you pick a decision that you made at the beginning of that series of events and point to that as the reason why things are all screwed up. And I think he looks to non-joining the non-team and just everything that happened after that. I, my brain was in a bowl of drugs. I, <laughs> this happened. The other thing happened. Man, fuck those guys. That's probably his thought process. Yeah, I would have been perfectly fine just being an evil supervillain mega billionaire burglar who was, unbeknownst to him, siphoning all of his money to snake-themed racists. If the Defenders hadn't gotten involved and messed up my life. Exactly. He specifically seems to bear a great deal of animosity to Steve, which I can understand on general principle, but... It doesn't seem like Steve has anything to do with his current predicament. It seems to be more a matter of like, I'm mad and they're here, so I guess I'm mad at them. Yeah, that said, he does have original Earth Kyle's recent memories, which Mm -hmm. are Steve doing a really, really bad job at leading the invasion that led to his demise. Yeah, I guess you're right. 
I wonder to what extent that is just a pretty typical Defenders exit interview. Is <laughs> just double middle fingers, fuck you, Steve, I'm out, go away. <laughs> and we just don't generally get to see those because most people quit the team by just storming away without saying a word and then mm-hmm. coming back. I think maybe the idea that he won't be rejoining the team at any time, he's like, no, I can actually say what I mean. Fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, you're cool, fuck you. <laughs> Yeah, pretty much. I will say I was surprised that Overmindy ended up coming back to Earth with the Defenders. Do you think they're going to join the team? Oh, man. That hadn't occurred to me. I just sort of wondered, yeah, hey, why is Overmindy there? But I hadn't made that leap. But, you know, stranger things have happened. Yeah, many of them in this issue. I hope they don't let August Masters join. I don't think he's... Defender's material, he's still kind of in fetal position, muttering, all wrong, all wrong. Okay, but that's not a terrible description to the way Jack Norris was most of the time he was hanging out with the Defenders. Oh, he was never, like, officially on the non-team, was he? No, but I hope that August Masters isn't hanging out with them in that capacity as well, you know? Oh, I don't think he will be. I I think the fact that he thought he was shooting actual Kyle would probably sour the defenders on his company. Well, you can't kick everyone off the team who's tried to kill Kyle. (laughs) Who are you going to be left with? Ah, touche. Okay, so what did you think of the main story of this? The weird defenders in a mashup of the Wizard of Oz and Dr. Seuss and Mr. Rogers and maybe Sesame Street that they end up in. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Talk about a pastiche. There was so much going on here. I guess let's start with the way that they got there, which I have to say I I very much appreciated where there was a malfunction in the teleporter machine, which was a bug, Mm -hmm. like a literal bug in the machine that caused some sort of a short circuit. And I love that they put that in there. That was the uh, origin of the term, you know, for software bug Mm -hmm. was there was like literally a moth that caused a short out in a computer in Harvard and I don't know, sometime in the 1940s. So it was nice to see that little Easter egg. Yeah, no, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the randomness of it. Like they didn't end up getting stuck in this dimension due to the machinations of an evil supervillain or something. It's not a complicated conspiracy. It's just a cockroach scurrying around. I'm going to say I really liked this story. I thought it was a lot of fun. I thought it was surprisingly well handled. Like the Dr. Seussian rhymes that were in the book were consistent with the way Dr. Seuss wrote rhymes and the meter worked and the tone of them worked. And that is something that I feel like is very rare in comic books. I feel like you have a few characters who will generally speak in rhyme. The demon is the one that leaps to mind for me. And the way writers handle his rhyme schemes is incredibly inconsistent and often just infuriates me, especially in terms of meter. This, it's really well written and it has a consistent tone. I thought it was really smart to make Namor the Dorothy character for the Wizard of Oz for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's always funnier when the character who takes themselves seriously and doesn't have a sense of humor about themselves is the butt of the joke. 
And that is absolutely what Namor is in this. He is so indignant. And also when it happens to him, you're like, oh, fuck again. Because he was one of the three characters who got lost between dimensions before and ended up bringing them into the last story that way, where he just gets stuck in a weirdo dimension. And you're just like, oh, my God, this poor fucking dude. But also, <laughs> it's always funnier when the chumps got dignity. Yeah, no, I, I love that. That was my favorite thing about this was Namor being the butt of the joke. And he does address that situation that you just brought up directly. Too. Mm-hmm. He's like, God damn it. <laughs> if Steve ever calls me again, I am not going to answer because something always goes crazy and I get lost in dimensions. Fuck this. Yeah. You'll also note that he said the only reason I showed up was because it was Valkyrie's funeral. Oh, subtle dig at Kyle there. <laughs> I know again. So, yeah, the story, you know, it's obviously a real love letter to the works of Dr. Seuss. Mm-hmm. And so as I was reading through it, you know, I was also reminded of the problems with the racism in his earlier works. And Mm -hmm. like, in order to enjoy this story for what it was, I had to like transport myself back to almost that, that like childhood frame of mind of reading the cat in a hat or the Lorax or something to not think about the stuff that's come to light more recently. Yeah which that kind of took the shine off it a little bit for me, having to go through that little mental gymnastics. Yeah, there's certainly been a lot of artists who we've had to kind of recontextualize how we view their work in the light of some of the more fucked up things they've done or said. And Dr. Seuss is a really tricky one because so much of his work is so intricately tied in with childhood memories and a kind of feeling of innocence. And I mean, the way that people choose to engage with art from a problematic artist is a personal decision. I'm not going to tell anybody that they have to separate the artist from their work or from their earlier views. For me, it is definitely a mitigating factor that that Theodore Giesel did disavow a lot of his earlier, more racist works and that his estate has decided not to publish them anymore. I don't know. Yeah. I understand that. It's, I don't know, it's not to split hairs, but like the the quality of the apology too sometimes is like, I don't know, the thing that I read where he was like, yeah, I, 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 you know, um, it made some embarrassingly, you know, bad judgments and snap judgments and stuff that uh, every political cartoonist does. And, you know, I totally shouldn't have done that, but there was a war on also. So, okay. Yeah, no, that that is not a great apology. And yeah, he the stuff that we're talking about or that I know of specifically, there are probably other things that I'm not as aware about. Uh, The main thing that I know is that he really did support the Japanese American internment camps, which is super fucked up and had a lot of, you know, pretty racist caricatures in some of his early work. Mm -hmm. Is there more that you were talking about or? No, it's the same, just in, in that vein. I, there was uh, some of his, like one of his early cartoons got auctioned off in the recent past where like the depictions of black people in it are terrible and Ooh. the use of the N-word is there in it. Oh. And that's just so disappointing when you see that stuff. 
It is. And I feel like that wasn't necessarily addressed as, you know, directly yeah. by the estate as you would want it to be. Because it's one of those moments where, you know, there should be a conversation. It shouldn't just be a, a cancel everything, right? Let, let's right. talk about it. You're absolutely right. I hadn't been aware of some of that other stuff. And it's not that I think that his attitudes towards the Japanese and Japanese Americans during World War II is something that should be dismissed or ignored. It, it shouldn't. For whatever reason, with Dr. Seuss, I am a little bit more able to compartmentalize and view his later work separately. But I totally understand if people are not able to enjoy any of his work because of that. Mm -hmm. There are certainly artists that I'm not able to separate at all. Like, I don't think I could ever read another Marion Zimmer Bradley book or rewatch a Woody Allen movie or reread an Orson Scott Card book. And that's not a moral judgment on people who can. It's just that there are certain artists that I associate so strongly with the negative things that they've done that I can't consume their work without thinking about it. And there are other artists who have equally fucked up views that I can. Yeah, it's, this is another one of those examples of, um, you know, like, hey, let's do a podcast about old comic books. <laughs> and it's never just about old comic books. Right. The specific story that is in this comic book reminded me so much of the Butter Battle book. Do you remember that one? It was the Dr. Seuss anti-war book that came out when I think we were both pretty little kids. Oh, Upside Down Toast or something? Yeah, it is so reflective of this story. And it came out, I think, a year or two after this comic. It was his anti-war book where there's the one group that butters their toast on one side, the other group butters their toast on the other side, and there's a huge escalation that leads to a giant war that probably ends in implied nuclear annihilation. And I remember reading that book as a kid. I, I remember reading it when it came out. I was like six or seven when it came out, so pretty close to the target demographic for the book, and uh, definitely had an impact on me. And this story is there is this war between these two places here and there, and the entire basis of the war is that one group thinks that here is there, and the other one thinks that there is here. Yeah, no, I, I loved that. I thought that was such a, a simple but also clever way to poke at that idea that so many of these conflicts that people have and nations and everything usually just boils down to there's no there there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I loved that. Also, I think the easy thing to do if you are doing a book like this, where you put superheroes in the setting of a different genre, is to then make it a superhero story that is just in a different setting, you know? Mm -hmm. But one of the things I love about this issue is that the comic book actively resists being a superhero comic book. The superheroes in it don't triumph by fighting people. They kind of don't triumph at all. They're largely bystanders in the story. I kept waiting for one of them to do something that would save the day, and they didn't. They were just kind of along for the ride. In fact, they were subdued by the henchmen of the evil, evil and giant air quotes, guy who basically bores them to sleep. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. So that was Thornton, who seems like by his name, he would be a Horton, like Horton hears a who. And the mayor of there is a cat in a hat. Maybe not the cat in the hat, but I think they are supposed to represent public television. 
and teaching children to read that way, as opposed to the Susian characters, Green Eggs and his uh, subordinate and Ham. Mm-hmm. And I thought there was some clever stuff going on. I got to admit, I got very defensive because the Thornton character is almost certainly supposed to be Mr. Rogers. And he keeps doing the thing where he says, can you say this? I knew you could. And calling people neighbor. And I get a little defensive because I do love Mr. Rogers. And I did when I was a kid. But I also do remember my mom as I was watching it being like, I know that you like this and it is for you. And I approve of this, but it bores the shit out of me. Yeah, it's such a specific thing that I remember loving when I was little. And then, I don't know, when I got to be a certain age, and I don't remember what age, it was like a switch had been flipped. <laughs> and now that now that I'm old, I'm like, oh yeah, Fred Rogers was the greatest. But there yeah. was a period there from, I don't know, 9 to 30. Where it's just like, ah, it's like nails on a chalkboard. Well, I may have smoked more pot in my 20s than you did. Well, <laughs> Maybe not, but uh, I, I will say there has never been a time in my life when I would not have gladly sat down and watched Mr. Rogers' trip to the goddamn crayon factory because I could watch crayons be made all day long. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. But you have that battle, and yeah, the defenders, the four defenders who ended up there, all end up getting just put to sleep. The only violence in the story at all is Green Eggs and Ham spanking the mayor with these little flaccid plastic half wiffle ball bats. Yep, that's exactly how I was going to describe them. Hmm. Hey, I got a question for you about the spanking scene. There's a graffiti on a brick in the wall there that says Conan was here. Yeah. Did you have any guesses about that? I searched for it online. And I just got a bunch of Conan O'Brien stuff, so that that wasn't helpful. <laughs> right. Um, I don't really. I think that is probably something that either Don Perlin or Hilary Barta, the inker that we have in this issue, added. I think it is maybe a nod to the fact that the structure of this story is kind of a sword and sorcery. Definitely subverted in a lot of ways, but yeah, I couldn't find any specific reason. I don't think that Don Perlin or Hilary Barta were known as Conan artists at this point, and I don't think DeMatteis had written the Conan character, so I'm not sure why that was there, other than that this loosely fits the genre of sword and sorcery. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Perhaps there was some psychotropic fuel... <laughs> behind the art for this issue that made that seem like a funny joke to put in. I don't know. Possibly. I loved the art in this issue. I think Don Perlin did a great job and we have a different inker in this, as I mentioned. It is uh, Hilary Barta. You have more realistic, I think, faces on the characters for the most part, which I think juxtaposes really well with the absurd Susian characters in the weirdo world that they end up in. I thought it was a lot of fun and it worked really well for this story. Yeah, I noticed in this issue in particular, because we see Val and Namor next to each other so much, her stature, like she's a good half a head taller 
the Namor. And I can't remember if she's normally depicted that way, but I thought that was interesting because she does have this real sort of like goddess stature about her. Mm-hmm. I think she is supposed to be really big like that, but artists have ways of fluctuating the way they draw characters, especially female characters. Their sizes tend to vary a lot, even if they're established as being very tall. I think the default is to sometimes draw them as shorter than their male counterparts. But yeah, I think that is kind of how Valkyrie should usually be drawn in terms of height. Yeah, so I, I appreciated that. And man, Namor can rock some some ruby shoes. I <laughs> hope he I really hope he keeps those, but I don't think he's gonna. I'd be kind of surprised if he did. We talked about how there is, in addition to the Dr. Seuss and the Mr. Rogers stand-in, a Wizard of Oz storyline with the ruby slippers and with Namor being the Dorothy character. I think it's odd that they chose the other characters the way that they did. Who do you think they represent in the Wizard of Oz paradigm? Because hmm. you had a cast of a dozen defenders to choose from for this. I think the Beast makes sense as the cowardly lion type character in that he appears to be very ferocious, but in fact has a very gregarious nature. Mm-hmm. And so I think he would be the lion. But it is odd to me that they specifically brought in the vision from the Avengers and they don't have him in this to be the Tin Man. And then like you would normally, I would think, have the Hulk be the Scarecrow type character who needs the brain. And they don't. They used Gargoyle and Valkyrie for those. Uh, what did you think of those choices and how do you think they represent their respective characters? Yeah, the closest is the Beast to the Lion. Really, with Gargoyle and Val, I mean, if I had to pick, I'd say Gargoyle needs a brain and Val needs a heart. But honestly, I think there was so much focus on, hey, it's going to be funny to put Namor in ruby slippers (laughs) that the rest of the narrative kind of got lost. I think that's fair. I think you're right about who is whom in that. I don't know if I used whom right. I I have never in my life known if I have used whom right. (laughs) It's a a tricky one. Sometimes I'll just throw one in there. Just trying stuff out, you know? Who is zooming whom? But I think that Valkyrie probably represents the Tin Man in that she's got some metal on her costume (laughs) and she puts up a very gruff front, but inside does actually have a lot of heart and is a very compassionate person. Uh, And you see her use that and exercise her influence on Namor in a really thoughtful way, which I really enjoyed her chilling him out and being like, Dude, I get it, but I've got a lot of respect for you, and so I need you to act like the person that I respect right now. And he's like, oh, okay. And that does temporarily chill him out a little bit. And uh, as for Gargoyle, I mean, yeah, I guess he's kind of a dumbass, so sure, he can be the Scarecrow. Yeah, I was waiting. I was like, okay, fuck it. Let's go. What's the fourth uh, franchise we're going to bring in here? <laughs> Honestly, I wasn't sure it it would have taken some extrapolation to get there. But the mayor of there, I felt like was probably supposed to be Sesame Street, but I couldn't really figure out how Mm. because he wasn't speaking in Seussian rhyme, despite looking like the cat in the hat and seemed to like he had the weird general cartoon speech impediment. Maybe he was just supposed to be cartoons in general because he had that Elmer Fudd thing going on with the W's. I don't know. Yeah, Elmer Fudd was what came to mind because there's also a Bugs Bunny reference. Right. Thornton mentions that in a bit where he's talking about how much he detests all cartoon violence. He makes a Bugs Bunny reference. 
that is actually a variation on a speech that I have heard Mr. Rogers give about how much he really is opposed to the violence that is in so much children's programming. And I tend to agree with him, even though I do also like that violent children's programming. Man, what is DeMatteis's problem with, with Fred Rogers? I suspect probably the same problem my parents had, which is that if you are a parent of a child, it is not entertaining to you in the same way that other things kind of are. Mm. You know, it, it is not made for you. I don't know. I feel like movies that are targeted at children, but also have content that can be appreciated almost only by an adult audience is like a recent thing. I don't think it really is. I, I mean, I know that that was part of what was going on with Sesame Street, certainly. Like, as a little kid, I liked the Alistair Cookie of Monsterpiece Theater, but I didn't really get the joke, and I'm sure my parents did. Oh, really? You didn't get that? I thought, like, the PBS was the only uh, station that we had. I remember watching yeah. Masterpiece Theater. <laughs> yeah, I, I did. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, oh, that's the old dude that explains the boring British show. What'd you think of the sign on City Hall above the door that says, um, out in whole? Yeah, that made me giggle for sure. Speaking of jokes that seem like they are for adults, not children that are in that <laughs> book. I couldn't figure out how that wasn't just a single entendre, frankly. Yeah. What did you think of the storybook that provides the story of how the Defenders are the legendary they? I was trying to think what it reminded me of, and I, I it was like ringing some vague bell, but I, I couldn't piece it together. It's got the, you know, Stan Lee Presents mm-hmm. on the cover, and then the, the title and the drawings, but yeah, I don't know. I enjoyed the way that they had the children's storybook art inside a children's book story so you get like another level of abstraction going on there in the depictions of the defenders inside this cartoon universe i thought it was interesting the stan lee presents thing i don't know if that's just well we're in a comic book so that'll be a fun in joke interestingly and i do not know if this is why that was chosen but theodore giesel or dr seuss did actually serve in the same army unit as Stan Lee in World War II. They made army training films and manuals together. No shit. And so that may have been like being around the Marvel offices. I know that Stan Lee wasn't actively working there at this point, but he would, I think, still come by and tell stories and stuff. And I can see him just being like, you know, I knew Dr. Seuss. And so maybe that is just like a little in-joke about that. Or it may just be coincidence, but either way, I thought it was kind of fun. Yeah, it was. It was fun. What was also fun is Namor losing his shit a few panels later and <laughs> smacking the book out of uh, Green Eggs's hands. <laughs> Enough! Oh, Namor was such a delightful curmudgeon in this story. <laughs> just continually put upon. It was really, really fun to watch him just be like, okay, finally, this'll be nice. I'll take a dip in some nice, cool, refreshing water. I, oh, what the fuck is this? Strawberry soda? That was so funny to me. I loved that. I loved his stance when they're roasting the banana over a spit and and Ham is offering him ham and he's just like, no, I refuse 
to sanction this buffoonery. He is such a stick in the mud. Mm-hmm. Just really highlighted by the gusto with which Gargoyle and everybody else join the party. Yeah, I think one of my favorite little moments in the book, which I don't know was an intentional joke, but I also don't know that it wasn't, was on page six, I think it is, when they are being introduced to the situation and told that there is a place called there, and they're asked if they're from there. Green Eggs says, Yes, there, right there, as you can see, is where the roadway leads. It's not a nice place, not at all. No flowers grow, just weeds. And as soon as he says weed, Beast jumps on that sign and is like, All right, let's go, buddy. <laughs> I, I didn't catch that. It may or may not be intentional. One of the writers who is most associated with Beast is Steve Englehart. He wrote his solo run in Adventure Comics and then later wrote a lot of his run when Beast first became an Avenger. And there is a sharp division in how the character is written between those two series. In his Amazing Adventures run, he's a very angst-ridden character who is very serious and trying to protect his identity. And it's a whole like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde thing. Still a little bit Frasier-y in that he's a very smart scientist guy, but not the fun-loving freewheeling guy that you see later. He's more Frasier, less Kelsey Grammer at that point. (laughs) And then once you get the way he's written in The Avengers... He is just fun-loving, wisecracking, has really put the angst behind him. And that is because Steve Englehart decided that the Beast went out to California and started smoking a bunch of weed because it was something that Steve Englehart as a writer had done. And uh, that represented kind of the, the shift in the character. And so I was maybe bringing that to the table in a way that I'm not sure DeMatteis had intended. But I love the like, oh, weed grows there. Yeah, you guys, come on. That's where we're going. (laughs) That's why Beast is so excited. He's right. (laughs) He seems to be embracing it in a way that really the other characters, with the exception of Gargoyle. Gargoyle's having a lot of fun with it. Valkyrie is largely neutral, but everyone seems to enjoy teasing Namor about what a stick in the mud he's being. Mm hmm. Well, there's still plenty to talk about, but I think most of what I wanted to bring up is probably going to come up in some segment or another in the minutia. Uh, Are you ready to move into the minutia, Corey? Let's do it. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part. It's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. So, Corey, what do you feel like starting with? How about some sound effects? Okay, Corey, what was your favorite sound effect in this issue? The choices were, I think, limited. That said, the noise of utter disgust that Namor makes when he surfaces from an ocean made of strawberry malt something tickled my funny bone, and that noise is... That is a pretty good one. Oh, he hated that so much. Uh Uh-huh, which was offset by... The weird stoned fish that he was riding on before who breaks out a straw and goes slurp. (laughs) Pretty good. I think my favorite was the boo-hoo-hoo of all of the Susian characters when Namor was mean to them. And he started feeling bad immediately. But it's more the lettering on the way the boo-hoo-hoo was written. It's all dripping down. It looked like the letters were crying. It was cute. 
Mm-hmm. Gargoyle yells at him for being mean to the cute Susian characters. Pretty good. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite panel? Well, one of them was what you just mentioned on page 10, and it's a gargoyle yelling at Namor for making them cry. And the look on Namor's face is one of, I don't know how would you describe that expression. It's like where it's a mix between contrition, but still really pissed off at the situation. Yeah, I'm honestly not really seeing that. I guess there's some slight contrition on there, but mostly it seems like whatever. Yeah, it's mostly whatever, but I think he also knows like, I feel bad. I made all these kids cry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you're right. It's a combination of contrition and disdain. Where he's like, can't believe I feel bad about this. Ugh. Yeah, it's a complicated emotion. Mm. Well, he's a complicated man. Mm. And no one understands him but his woman, John Shaft. Don't know if he could eat seven hot dogs without realizing it, but... Uh, he's, he's no Richard Roundtree. One of my favorite panels is the scene that I mentioned before, where all of the Susian characters are roasting a giant banana on a spit. It just looks like such a weird, fun party, and there are so many little things going on in it. Uh, Someone is offering Namor a steak, and he is giving that steak the Heisman and has no interest in it. You have a character who is playing his beard like a fiddle with a bow. That is really fun. And another character is playing his trumpet-shaped nose like a trumpet. There's just so much going on in it, and it's all really fun and goofy. You have the moon smiling and winking, flower trees. I don't think that's the one that has the shoe tree in it, but there's so much joy in the art and the way that it is put together, and it's so different than so much of the art that we see, even in the same comic book, that it's really impressive, and I just really liked that scene. Yeah, it's a whimsy abounds. Uh, Along similar lines on page seven, I really like what I call the Seuss reveal, where they look up from the giant weird shaped mushroom that the beast is sitting on and you see all of the Seussian characters of the town of here gathered. And it's just like, oh, fuck, we're into some weird shit here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think my ultimate favorite panel was along very similar lines and on page 13 i called it army of goofs slash give me strength i know the one you're talking about namor is just repeating inside his mind give me strength give me strength give me strength and uh yeah you see the goofball army assembled and they are adorable Mm -hmm. that is when we find out that all of their weapons are plastic and totally harmless it is a very sweet scene Beast is getting into it. He's, he wants one of the paper hats that the guys are wearing. It's, it's just stinking cute, man. It is. I think maybe my absolute favorite panel, though, is what I call the return home, which is just such a fun image of cosmic psychedelia that looks like it is out of a Sesame Street interstitial cartoon. It's the word here, and then there is just like, a weird Rube Goldberg device cosmic water slide that they're going through to end up back in the Sanctum Sanctimonious. And it reminds me of like the Pointer Sisters song. The number song. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I, it's just a great image and really nicely done. 
there was either a, a Wong or a Waput segment where I had to, where I had to, I watched the <laughs> the whole video <laughs> for that song. It is trippy. And that song is so good. Oh, it is good. Yeah. Pointer Sisters. Mm-hmm. Corey, we haven't had one of these in quite some time, but I think it's important that at this juncture we ask ourselves the important question. Behold or be gone? Namor in this comic does not enjoy swimming through strawberry soda. But when it comes to the concept of swimming in a non-water liquid, where do you stand on that? Would you like to or would you not? Behold or be gone? I am racking my brain to think of a liquid that I would want to swim in that is not water. Do you have some suggestions? I don't necessarily. Most of them, like the concept even of something that I really like, like I'm thinking of like, I don't know, like soups and beverages that I enjoy. And neither of those sound like they would be good. The idea of getting any of them in my eyeball just seems horrible. Yeah, no dairy, no food. That leaves only uh, beer (laughs) and uh, solvents and lubricants. And none of those sound (laughs) sound good. I will say one of my favorite experiences that I have had was it was water, but was <laughs> swimming in. Have you ever been to Brighton Bush? I have not, but I have been to Hot Springs. So Brighton Bush is a Hot Springs place that is out here, and I've had several friends who have worked there over the years. So I've gotten to go and stay in the employees side where they do the, the maintenance and the hospitality stuff. And they have there a giant swimming pool that they are able to occasionally fill with the hot tub water. It can only be used by the employees there. It can't be used by the guests because they can't like keep it sanitized and keep it filled and like keep it in a way that it would be legal or worth their while for them to have that be a guest experience. But I got to swim in a pool filled with hot springs water and it was really nice and really weird. And I loved it. That sounds pretty good but uh but that is still water still water it, it, it is a different temperature water and a kind of stinky water but yes still water Ah, uh, gosh what i feel like there has to be a substance that i would want to swim through nothing without goggles or well you can wear goggles like wh- what about spaghetti <laughs> oh i guess that's not a liquid oh that's disgusting <laughs> yeah I was thinking, like, I don't know, something that would be texturally or buoyancy interesting, like hydrogen peroxide. But oh, God, what if you opened your mouth or, or, or you had a or, cut or, or any other orifice? Yeah, like you're, you're going to it's clean you right out. Good. <laughs> I don't even like to get Dr. Bronner's in some of those places. <laughs> OK, I think I think we're looking at a couple begones. Yeah, I want that to be something that I would enjoy, but when I actually think about it, it sounds terrible. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of on Team Namor here, so I guess a pair of Begons. Well, it was worth a shot. What was your pie not made out of steel in this issue? What words did you like best, much like you would like a pie if it were not made of steel? Well, as I believe I said at the uh, the top of the Korean hub segment of the show. I really liked it when Beast said, I think for the second time, 
well, plunk my magic twanger and call me Froggy. <laughs> I had a listener tell us what children's show that was from, from the 60s, but I have since forgotten. Do you remember? Oh, I do not. As Froggy and his magic twanger were part of, I, I don't think it was Howdy Doody, but maybe a show from that era. Hey there, Editor Hub here in the future. The show is called Andy's Gang. I enjoyed that as well. I also really liked the Beast's very on-the-nose, turn-to-camera, anti-war message when there is the reveal that all of the weapons are essentially non-functional toys. Valkyrie is like, are you daft? Beast's reaction to that is, maybe he is, Val, but it'd sure be nice if the leaders on our world were half as daft. And it's like, okay, it's a little bit on the nose, but more and more, I am okay with things being on the nose because it's amazing how many people miss things that aren't on the nose. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. okay. Yes. Yeah, I, I found the anti-war messaging of this story really timely with everything that's going on in in Ukraine right now too. It's so weird to I don't know. We're reading these these books from so many years ago and just these themes keep popping up that are perennial, I guess. And I mean nostalgia is definitely not the right word, but there is a familiar, a very familiar sense of oh we are potentially on the brink of a World War III involving Russia. I know what this feels like. Mm-hmm. On a lighter note, my other favorite words were all Susian in nature. And they're kind of picked at random, because as I said, I think all of the Susian dialogue in this is done excellently. The initial introduction of Mayor Greeneggs of here is, oh my, oh me, don't think us rude, we do not mean to stare, but since you four appear so strange, are you perhaps from there? I I like that. It is well executed. I appreciate the meter, and I appreciate the consistency in tone and wording. I also like the introduction of the storybook that we discussed earlier. It's again Mayor Greeneggs. It's buried here in this old chest. I only need to look. Neath smelly socks and locks and cheese, I should unearth the book. The book was written eons past, or was it yesterday? At any rate, on page 14 is the Chronicle of They. And that's where we see the little doodles of the four superheroes in the book. And I thought that was really fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like you said, really well executed. Definitely a, a good homage to the meter that Seuss employed. Mm-hmm. Any other favorite words you wanted to bring up? Yeah, there was one bit on uh, page four, which incidentally, I, I do really like the nickname that Kyle gave Hyperion. He calls him Hype. <laughs> Pretty sure. good. But he's he's yelling at Hyperion to flip the switch and get rid of the defenders back to their home world. And uh, when he does that, the wording is, the switch is hit and a dozen forms lose substance, fade, then are hurled like human leaves. In a cosmic gale across infinity. Oh. Yeah. Pretty good. Pretty good. Every issue of a Defenders comic book has a best defender and a worst offender. 
in this issue, who did you have as your best and who did you have as your worst? For being everybody's favorite butt of a joke, but also getting everybody home, I went with Namor for my best. He did activate the Ruby sneakers pretty darn well. I had Valkyrie. She kind of just kept things on track, kept Namor from flying off the handle as much, and appeared to be really, I don't know, treading the line between making fun of Namor and acknowledging his frustration and trying to chill him out. And uh, I appreciated her. I thought she was just a lot of fun in the book. Yeah, good choice. Conversely, for my worst offender, I went with Kyle. His displeasure with Steve, well, perhaps understandable, seems pretty misplaced. Also, everybody in the book did a fine job, but most people didn't really do anything. And it is maybe going to be my last chance to uh, put the shitty crown on Kyle's crappy head. So (laughs) I'm going to take advantage of that. Yeah, that's fair. I was tempted to do the same, but uh, ultimately I went with Overmindy mm. for, you know, screwing up and bringing Masters out and leaving Kyle to die and then popping bad Kyle and ostensibly better Kyle's mind. And like, it just seemed like a bad set of choices. Yeah, not great. I was surprised, too, that she mentions that she has half a dozen minds inside her mind. I thought there were way more psychics than that in there. Yeah, I was trying to think back to the depiction of when they were all hooked up to that psychic machine, how many there were, but... I think I had just gotten the impression that there was probably another room of psychics, too, like that it was part of some vast complex that they were all there. But uh, I guess it was just the five or six of them. Wow, that strains credulity even more (laughs) that (laughs) they could uh, defeat the billions and billions of uh, Null and Overmind. Good for them. Scrappy little underdogs all piled inside of that weird bearded freak. Yep. Let's have ourselves a battle of the band names. In this issue, what band names were you able to find in the text? Mm. This one is. Kind of like, uh, I think, folky, emo-type acoustic music. And it's an ensemble of people. They go by the name A Man of Wild Emotion. Ooh, nice. Kind of sounds like A Man of Constant Sorrow a little bit. Yeah. All right. I can see that. I was, first of all, dismayed to find that Blah 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 was, in fact, a band. Mm. But I thought that the Sappy Simps sound like they might be a pretty fun punk power pop combo. (laughs) I like it. Maybe sound a little bit like the Exploding Hearts, something like that. I don't know them. Oh, they're good. They're from Portland. I think you'd like them. Oh, cool. I have a, uh, what I can only assume is a a metal or new metal band goes by Lost to Rage. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think they toured with like a system of a down or something mm-hmm. recently. Yeah. I think that was on the Hub Would Rather Get Elective Eyeball Surgery Than Watch This tour. Mm. I think my favorite is what I think is probably a uh, like fuzzed out indie rock band that uses a lot of distortion called Buzz Mutter. 
<laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, it's, it's something that I believe And Ham says when he is whispering in Green Eggs's ear. But uh, Buzz Mutter, I was like, that's actually really good. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think I saw them with Mud Honey at Satyricon back in the nineties. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, Pond opened for them. <laughs> Gosh, I, I don't know. I could maybe use some help with the genre here, but I think it's another one of those that kind of like Childish Gambino, like came out of one of those name generators. Mm. They just stuck with it. Yeah, so maybe this is also a, a like a solo hip hop artist and its perfidious villain. With an exclamation point. Yeah, perfidious villain, I think, might have been one of Cool Keith's alter egos. Mm-hmm. Like Dr. Octagon, perfidious villain. Oh, yeah. Black Elvis. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I think those are all pretty good. Of them, what is your favorite? Run me by yours again. I just had two. I had the Sappy Simps, and I had Buzz Mutter. I feel like we haven't had a one-word band name in a while. Maybe we need to get back to simplicity and go with Buzz Mutter. I would be fine with that. I, I like Buzz Mutter. I think that's pretty good. I think they sound like fun. Yeah. All right. Let's go with the fuzzed out indie rock of Buzz Mutter. Corey, sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this book did you find most noteworthy? Well, it's not a band name per se, but because it didn't appear in the text, but it sounds like one. And I'm going to go with uh, ruby red sneakers and paper hats. Yeah, it's a tight combo. I liked the paper hats of the uh, Susian army. And uh, those ruby sneakers were really detailed and looked pretty fun, like kind of chunky, like nice sneakers. I think they're a good look for Namor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like a uh, what's a fashion brand? Dolce & Gabbana. Is that a fashion brand? I thought perhaps they made chocolate. I'm pretty sure it's a fashion thing. That makes sense. But Dolce, I think, means sweet, so you could be onto something with the chocolates. Do you think secretly all of their clothing is edible? I think not. Oh, well, anything's edible if you try hard enough. Anything's edible once. <laughs> Touché. Very few things are edible twice, Corey. <laughs> Unless you... Uh, Count my dog's opinion. <laughs> oh, no. No, I was referring to poisons. Oh, gotcha. Or, you know, the wrong mushroom or whatever. Sure. I did want to talk a little bit about the mayor of theirs outfit. He is a cat in the hat. He has a big gold top hat covered in gold nuggets, it looks like. And some not boxer shorts, but boxing shorts, maybe. Like, mm -hmm. they look like they have that kind of like a... The waistband like a boxer would wear. He has a long flowing green cape with a gold safety pin as the clasp. And he is purple, so you can understand why the people from here might think that he is a villain. Because he is wearing the classic uh, purple and green combo there. But yeah, he's also got like a big groupie. A big groupie? <laughs> um, I don't think that's his relationship with Thornton. <laughs> He also has just a big, droopy, villainous mustache, and it is a really fun character look for him. I, I enjoyed that. Yeah, I, I liked it, too. I, I like the little detail of um, his gold top hat has little holes cut out for his cat ears or bunny ears or whatever they are to poke out the sides. Pretty good. 
In terms of human fashion in this, I did want to give a brief shout out to Luann Bloom's look as she is waiting to meet her informant, who it turns out is Elf with a gun. But she is wearing a purple trench coat with a high-necked turtleneck yellow sweater under it, and it also looks as though she has perhaps swiped Valkyrie's boob cones and is wearing them under her outfit. It's on page 12, and like... There's a perspective issue with with that panel, because it appears as if she has swiped only the... What side is that? The right boob cone? Yeah, it is weird. It It is just anatomically off in a way that I'm not used to seeing from Don Perlin. Aggressively pointy boobs. Mm -hmm. But just one. Because the other one is like her body is at like a three quarter diagonal to the to the viewer. And so I think they were trying to capture that like, you know, diagonal perspective. I don't know the art words for it, but it falls flat because only one aggressively pointy boob is. Well, I I, I don't think falling flat is necessarily something you could describe (laughs) her. As being, I think you can see like under the button to her coat, you can see the other boob is maybe just pointing in the other direction, like maybe pointing it's, towards it's at, camera. at the viewer. Yeah, it is odd. It's gravity defying. Yes. And, and frankly, a little frightening. Mm-hmm. Now, Corey, I think we would probably both agree that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's? rules. Yeah, I think um, the Hulk's going to take a bit of advice from Easy Read's book, and uh, that's that if you got kids or you're in a position to be teaching children, don't be overly permissive. Mm. Like Boundaries are important. Otherwise, you're going to wind up with a mere Easy Read situation. That was basically his excuse for why he was dropping rotten tomatoes on everybody. Yeah. It's like, hey man, my parents were way too lenient. Also, how relieved were you to find out that Ginks wasn't a racial slur? I, you know what? I just, I was going on hope. I didn't, I didn't look it up. I am fairly certain. It seems like it still might be, but it, it, it was just a word that's like the mayor's underlings are called flying Ginks. And a Gink is a insult. It means a foolish or contemptible person but I could not find any evidence that it is a racial slur, although it does say origin unknown, so it certainly is a possibility. It does have a bad sound to it. It has a very bad sound to it. I I feel weird saying it, honestly. Uh Yeah, it's like, what was the one for the little guys in the ring world that we don't like either? Sput? Sputs? Yeah, the sputs. Uh Yeah, that didn't sound, that, that felt bad. Just has that bad feel to it, I don't know. I had the Hulk's rule being, before you call somebody silly, maybe check to see if you're wearing a green Speedo and have tiny little wings on your feet. Mm. Because part of Namor's attitude when he finds himself in the Susian world is understandable. It's the second time in a fairly brief period of time that he has found himself stranded in a different dimension. I get that. But he is so disgusted that he's finding himself in a place that is so silly. And yeah, he is in a place that is very silly. I would argue it is no sillier 
objectively than the regular place he is from. The Marvel Universe is a very silly place, and he is trying to look dignified and put upon and aghast at the silliness of the situation he is in. When he is wearing his normal outfit, which he governs an undersea nation in, which is a green speedo, and he has tiny little wings on his feet and a triangle-shaped head. I'm like, you're you're objectively a very silly person. So, uh, you know, people in green speedos shouldn't throw silly stones, I guess is the Hulk's rule. Yeah, don't cock your uh, Annette Funicello painted on eyebrows at me like that, sir. <laughs> Man, there is a scene where Valkyrie has, like, serious Joan Crawford face going on in terms of her eyebrow game. Mm. But yeah, look at yourself before you're calling other people silly. All right, so don't be overly permissive with children and check yourself lest you wreck yourself. Indeed. Good rules. Now, Corey, there is just one further question I have to ask you. In the year of our Lord, 1983, and the month of our Lord, January, what Wong doings was Wong doing? Uh, throughout the last week of the month, Wong was wallowing in regret. Oh, dear. He had gone on a bit of a bender earlier that year with his buddy Stephen J. Cannell and Frank Lupo. <laughs> <laughs> and as part of that bender pitch to them man wouldn't it be amazing if there was a show that was like the road warrior but also like the dirty dozen but also like mission impossible but uh mr t is driving a van <laughs> and sure enough that those two guys took it and pitched it to then uh nbc president brandon tartikoff it got turned into the a-team which premiered on january 23rd 1983 and why wong was wallowing in regret was because he now had to bear with Steve saying, I love it when a plan comes together at the drop of a hat. Yeah, Steve is a real George Papard type, isn't he? He sure is. And uh, yeah, much to Wong's consternation, that first regular episode after the premiere reached about a quarter of the entire measurable television viewing audience, putting it number four in the Nielsen 10, and show ran for five years, 83 to 87. Wow. Nominated for three Emmy Awards, and even spawned its own Marvel comic. Not bad. Well, depends who you ask. Did you ever watch the A-Team? Did I? Yeah, I did. And in fact, I was going to use as my joke for Wong, like the thing my dad did, which was I could watch the show on the condition he would sit there and ridicule <laughs> the violence. Well, that, that car blew up. There's no way they would have survived that. Look at that. They're walking away without a scratch. It's like, Jesus, Dad, I'm not stupid. <laughs> I know that's not realistic. But then I realized if I did that, I would be making myself the Steve in this situation. <laughs> so I had to change it. Fair enough. I wanted to watch the A-Team really badly, but our TV literally at that time only got Channel 11, the PBS station. So I used to pay kids a nickel on the bus to tell me what happened on the A-Team so that I could talk about it with the other kids at school and they wouldn't think I was a weirdo. Ah, yeah. Good hustle. Eh, wasn't great hustle. They still almost certainly thought I was a weirdo and were correct. Oh, yeah. I, d I wonder about the, because I, I have that memory of a TV that only got PBS too, and then miraculously one day it didn't, which makes me think that, I don't know, did my dad just like remove the knobs or something? <laughs> <laughs> like, there's, it's, it's the only one we get. It's possible. 
he was a pretty handy guy. Yeah. So maybe it was like an early, like, um, I don't know if censorship's the right word, but like, you know, I'm going to protect my kid by just having him mm. only watch Masterpiece Theater and Sesame Street. Well, the joke's on him because I also watched the Benny Hill show. <laughs> Educational television at its finest. Oh, yeah. Well, that was one thing that Wong was up to, but it wasn't the only thing that Wong was up to. His other adventure also did involve television. See, Wong was trying to mend fences with Namor, who was understandably peeved at Steve and the other defenders about getting stranded in two different nonsense dimensions, one of which was run by a weird-looking monster and a purple cat in a top hat, and the other of which was run by an even more disturbing creature, Kyle. <laughs> so, uh, as I said, Namor, not feeling the Defenders, and Wong was like, well, I think he needs to chill out a little bit. So Wong visited Atlantis and was like, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hook you up with free cable. Can use my engineering know-how and some of my entertainment contacts. I'm not sure which of them he used, possibly a combination of the two. And uh, yeah, I'm just going to hook up all of Atlantis with free premium cable. Ooh. And Namor was like, thanks, Wong. I'm not mad at you. Just the other defenders now. And Wong was like, you know what? For now, I'll take that. Unfortunately, Namor was started flipping through channels trying to get his mind off of his adventures in the lands of here and there. And he's finds this channel that he's like, oh, this will be fun. The Hobo Channel. I have fond memories or partial memories of wandering around the earth as a hobo and a transient in my amnesiac state. I'll see what they're up to. Maybe they'll show the fine program The Littlest Hobo about a disreputable German shepherd. <laughs> that sounds like a fine time. Imperious Rex. And he clicks the channel, turns up the volume on HBO, which is not, in fact, a hobo-themed television station. And it happened to be January 10th, and he saw the inaugural episode of Fraggle Rock. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> Which gave him horrible <laughs> flashbacks to the Susian world where he had previously found himself. Oh, no. And that's the doings that Wong was doing in January of 1983. Well, Corey, thank you so much for joining me. I had a great time talking to you about this weird-ass comic. Yeah, likewise. You'll be back to talk about another weird comic in a couple of weeks, but next week you're going to be off. You'll be uh, getting lost and having an adventure in another dimension. Try to steer clear of any purple cats wearing big capes that you find. Mm -hmm. They were apparently not raised well. <laughs> yeah. Well, just remember, you can't get there from here. Mm. But we will have a special episode with a special guest next week that I'm very much looking forward to. In the meantime, if you would like to get into touch with us, we can be reached at Tighten up the defense, P.O. Box 20311, Portland, Oregon, 97294. Or, as this is the future, we can be reached electronically. Can you imagine such a thing? At ttwasteland at gmail.com. We're also up on the socials media every now and again, so you can uh, try to find us on there. Saying a thing, doing a thing, posting a picture. Uh, recently, I posted a picture of the character Gary Gnu 
from uh, the Great Space Coaster, because I think that's a better version of Wildebeest. So, mm. you know, got any thoughts about Gary Gnu? No Gnu's is good Gnu's. Feel free to share them with me. And hey, if you can't find us on the socials media, there's one more place that you can look, and that's deep inside your heart. Corey, what are you going to be doing in people's hearts this week? I'm going to kick back on the couch and enjoy a strong cup of coffee and maybe read a book. Nice. Anything in particular? Yeah, I just started uh, The Blind Giant by uh, Nick Harkaway. Ooh. Nonfiction by him about uh, hmm. how people in technology bump into one another. Pretty interesting stuff. Cool. I like the way that fella writes. He's got a big uh, brain. I'm probably going to just be posting up and reading another 11 Spencer novels in people's hearts. <laughs> Finding out <laughs> some uh, gross recipes and uh, Boston driving instructions and uh, just having a good time. Oh, sounds like we'll, we'll have a, a quiet time <laughs> sitting on the couch reading our different books. Very nice. If you would like to support the show monetarily, you can go and check us out on patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a whole bunch of bonus material. There are a bunch of podcasts and little videos that I've made that are up there. I'm going to try to get a few more of those up this week. I uh, wasn't really able to record much while I was out on the coast this last month, so I'll be trying to make up for that. That stuff is up there to thank people for donating to the show. Because it is uh, your donations that make it possible for us to keep doing the show. So, thank you guys for that. Indeed. Corey, if people would like to support the show in a non-financial way, well, what's a way they could do that? The two ways that come to mind are uh, telling people about the show and, or, leaving a review for the show. Hmm. What would, uh, what would be an example of a person that they could tell about the show? You could tell your neighbor about the show okay like you're out mowing the lawn uh-huh and you stop the lawnmower and sure. your neighbor's like hey looking good nice grass you know oh that sounds creepy your neighbor sounds like a creep cory what, what's it's nothing that's wholesome appreciating a good mowed lawn oh okay i i guess maybe it was just the tone Oh, did I say that creepy? Should I go again? <laughs> I don't know. I just, you know, like, hey, looking good. Nice grass. Just, yeah, it sounds... <laughs> That's not what I sound like. I beg to differ, Carl. Oh. I think if you play this back, you'll realize that what you said was, hey, nice grass, yeah, if you that... catch my meaning. Uh -huh. That's mm -hmm. why I don't listen to my <laughs> show. <laughs> Yep, so uh, don't say it like that, but should, should you be in a situation where um, you're having a conversation with your neighbor, mm -hmm. you could say, hey, by the way, uh, this is a good podcast. You should give it a shot. Oh, that sounds nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hope your neighbor's not a creep like the guy in that scenario, though. Yeah, no, that's, uh, nobody wants that. I mean, creeps still do probably like the show, but we, we, don't, need, we don't need them listening. No, go away, creeps. <laughs> We test very well in the creep demographic, I gotta say, though. That's disappointing. It's probably just my voice. Most of our listeners are very good people, not, not creeps like that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something about leaving a review. Is, is that that's also something people can do? Oh, yeah. So uh, wherever you got your podcast, there's probably a little button or something that you can select for leaving mm -hmm. a review. And you just get in there and type something like, uh, 
I don't know. Well, plunk my magic twanger and call me froggy. This is a good show. Five stars. Oh, pretty good. And they don't have to type like exe at the end of that or anything or uh, dot email. Nope, nothing. Just type it up. Hit the hit the little button that says well, submit or something, and good to well, go. That sounds very simple. I think it's pretty simple. That must be why we have over two hundred five star reviews at this point. Mm-hmm. And I think only like two of them are from us. <laughs> <laughs> It's like when you put a dollar in the tip jar at the beginning. Right, right. Yeah. Just, you know, primes you the pump. Yeah. So, listeners, if you're curious, <laughs> go ahead and read all those reviews. See if you can guess which ones are ours. Mmm. That, that sounds like a fun adventure. Doesn't that sound fun? Yeah. So, you know, after you leave your own review, that'll be a nice thing you could do. You could be like, well, I know it's not that one, because I just left that, and I'm not Hubber Corey. Or am I? Mm. Whoa! Now you're probably not. No. Well, until next week, probably just don't trust anyone wearing a cat in the hat hat. Mm. Best case scenario, they're a mischievous, magical creature who is gonna fuck up your whole life before your parents come home. Worst case scenario, they're they're that that guy in a band that I saw. <laughs> they were so Ugh. bad. <laughs> they were really bad. Goodbye. Bye. And they knew it. And they knew it. Do we need to do that <laughs> that part again? No, I'll sift through that and pan out the gold oh, and Jesus. throw that away and leave in the silt. <laughs> Wait, maybe I've been doing this editing thing all wrong. <laughs> oh, man. Making this, either way, it sounds like a lot of work. Yeah. You ever pan for gold? Um, I don't think so. It seems like the kind of thing you'd probably notice. Like if you had done it, yeah. Well, it's uh, the like, thing. I don't, I don't think I've ever been a prospector. <laughs> what you got? You got Tillamore Dew. Yep. Nice. I'm having a deconstructed Irish coffee. It's like a bowl of cream and <laughs> yep, <laughs> shot of whiskey. Uh huh. And a separate little bowl filled with regret. <laughs> <laughs>